Hebrews 2, chapter 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. And would you please join me in prayer? Father, we give you such great thanks for your word. Father, we thank you that by your Holy Spirit, you apply its truths to our hearts. And so, Father, we pray that you would be with us. Shine a light on your word so that we may understand it and that we may come to know you better. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, here at Christmas time, there's no shortage of reminders that our dear Lord and Savior was born as a little baby boy. You can sing songs about little Lord Jesus. Maybe you have a nativity display where you put a little doll or a porcelain figure of Jesus. Or maybe uh, growing up, you had a, a sort of abstract flannel cutout of baby Jesus put up on a flannel graph. Now, I'm not here to tell you that, you know, we, Jesus did come. I am here to tell you that Jesus did come so that we would see God. John's gospel says right, at the, right close to the very beginning that this is one of the reasons that he came. But he also didn't come as a human being so that we could just trivialize him or infantilize him. He didn't come so that we could, so to speak, leave him in the manger. And so what we see here in this passage in Hebrews is that there is so much more to why it matters that Jesus was born a human being. And in particular, what we learn is that it matters so much that Jesus was just like us. And yet he was so much more. For Jesus' human life is an integral part of his atoning work. Jesus had to be human to pay the price for our sins. And so we're going to look at this fact in this passage in two particular facets. First, from verses 14 through 16, that his death brought victory over death. And second, from verses 17 through 18, that his priestly sacrifice brought victory over sin. And so first, let's look at Jesus' victory over death. Now, the children that he writes about here in verse 14 are those who believe in God. He's quoting in verse 13 from Isaiah 8, 18, that these children are those who put their trust in God. And even uh, looking at the context from Isaiah, the, the people who put their trust in God and who bear witness to him, to the world. Well, it says here that these children, people like you and me, 
share in flesh and blood. So there's this emphasis placed in this passage on our physical existence. Because we're made of muscle and skin and bones and organs and blood. And so Jesus, partaking of the same flesh and blood that you and I live with, indicates that he experienced mortality the same way that you and I experienced it. And in particular, this passage is highlighting how he experienced the risk of death. Because he was, as a child, he was at risk from childhood diseases. As a a teenager and an adult, he was at risk from work accidents. And we know that in his... uh, In his ministry, his public ministry, he was frequently at risk from murderous crowds and so on. But while Jesus shares this aspect of mortality with regular people like you and me, Jesus in his mortality went to greater heights and accomplishments than you and I ever could. And so as we consider Jesus' mortality, we're going to look at first what he did, second, what he accomplished, and third, for whom he accomplished it. Now we see quite directly that Jesus died. That's what Jesus did with this mortality. So his mortal existence didn't just bring the risk of death, he actually died, just the same as every single one of us will. And he didn't die just any death. He didn't die of disease or an accident or even at the hands of an unruly mob. He died a judicial death. He was executed by the state. But Paul quotes Deuteronomy 21-23 saying, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. For the manner of Jesus' death makes it clear that he is being executed as if a criminal. So his death was not an accident. It wasn't a natural cause. It was a deliberate act by which he suffered wrath for sin. And to those of his disciples who were with him, who who were there to observe his crucifixion, it's impossible to overstate just how much his death looked like defeat. We can see in the Gospels how before they they met Jesus again in his resurrection, the disciples were left dejected, despondent, um, hiding themselves from the authorities. Everything that they had hoped that Jesus would do came, came crashing down when he died. But the disciples were blind to what Jesus was truly accomplishing in his death. For it says here that by his death, Jesus destroyed the devil who had the power of death. Now, in what sense did the devil have the power of death? Well, in essence, God made human beings for immortality. But through our sin, we became subjects of the devil and susceptible to death. And so those who belong to the devil will die, but those who belong to God will live. And so it's, it's in this sense that the devil has power over death. And since all fell uh, on account of the fall, death had the last word on everything that we are and do as human beings. 
And this is the very state of affairs that Jesus changed by his death. For by suffering God's wrath for sin, he paid the sentence of death for all those who put their trust in him. So he defeated death by securing eternal life for those who trust in him. And although this particular passage doesn't speak of the resurrection, the resurrection also shows in another way how Jesus defeated the devil and the power of death because he threw off the shackles of death. Death could not contain him. And in doing this, he demonstrated decisively that God, not the devil, has ultimate power over death. And so in a manner of speaking, he stripped the devil of his power so that God could show that he was the one who has all the power. And so you see how important it is that Jesus lived a life like ours, for he had to die to defeat the power of death. But you can't deny unless you are mortal in the first place. And so he had to be just like us in mortal life. And that brings us to those for whom he accomplished this victory. For he did it for those who were slaves of the devil. The devil wants to hold death over your head. He wants to coerce you into following him. And the fear of death has that effect on us. For that fear of death makes us his slave. Another passage that speaks of this is Ephesians 2, where it says that we once followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But Jesus defeated the devil by taking his children from him. Even though the fear of death is God's punishment, led us to hate God and want to remain as slaves to the devil, but Jesus instead makes us free and leads us to love God. Now this passage also speaks of angels, and I think it's fair to ask why does this passage bother to bring them in? Well, these first couple of chapters of Hebrews are ultimately all about establishing the superiority of Christ, his preeminence in all of creation. And so they establish that Jesus is superior to the angels, and yet Jesus is brother of those who believe in him. Now, Jesus is the firstborn and the preeminent brother, and he uh, is not only a human brother, but also he is God, God with us. And so you could perhaps paraphrase this statement as saying, who do you think he came to help? The angels? No, he came to help the offspring of Abraham. And so what does it mean to be Abraham's offspring? Well, Paul says in Romans 4, if you believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead, you are Abraham's offspring. For God promised Abraham a great nation of people who have genuine faith in God. And so if you put your trust in God, if you believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus Christ our Lord, you are a member of Abraham's nation and he sets you free from your sin all of which was accomplished by Jesus' death. It's required him to lead a mortal life like ours. But there's another aspect of Jesus' earthly life that we turn to next in verses 17 and 18. For it wasn't enough that he shared our physical nature. He was like us in every respect. And so he had to go through life exactly as we did. 
For he came down from the throne room of heaven and lived an ordinary life. And he entered life the same way that every single one of us did through birth. He began his life, yes, as a helpless baby, the same as you and me. He went through teething problems. He skinned his knees while playing. We read in Luke 2.52 that he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So, in some way that I, I don't have time to unpack tonight, he even experienced the process of growing in maturity. And so he knows firsthand what it's like to live a truly and fully human life. And as it says here, it was necessary for him to lead that truly human life so that he could be the high priest for his people. Now, what a high priest does is, first of all, a high priest stands before God as the mediator of all the people. He's the representative of God's people to God. And so in ancient Israel, the priests were set apart and consecrated so that they would in fact be holy before God. And this consecration included acts such as offering sacrifices for their sins, anointing them with perfumed oil, and putting sacred clothes on them. And so these acts purified these priests in God's sight so that they could stand in his presence and represent unclean people before God. But in order for the priest to represent the people before God, he himself had to be one of the people. And here we see how Jesus is both like and unlike those priests. For Jesus never sinned. He lived a truly human life. He's a true representative of the human race before God. He's the true and final priest that all the priests before him pointed to, but he himself never sinned. And it's his sinlessness that makes the difference for his commission from God, which was to pay for the sins of his people. Because all the other priests that went before Jesus, they sinned. They had to offer sacrifices for their own sins. And the sacrifices that they offered were therefore only temporary and had limited effectiveness. The priests could never offer a perfect sacrifice because they themselves were sinners. But Jesus never sinned. And so he was able to offer a single sacrifice that purified the people for all time. And unlike those priests, his sacrifice was perfect because he sacrificed himself. He sacrificed himself, the only perfect and sinless human being ever to live. That's why it says here that he made propitiation for the sins of the people. Now this English word propitiate, it's used to gloss a, a word group in Greek and Hebrew that expresses the covering up of sin. Jesus' blood covers your sins in the sight of God so that he doesn't see them anymore. Now, without Christ's blood, God sees your sins and he's driven to wrath. But when he sees Jesus' sinless and perfect blood covering your sins, he's driven instead to show you his favor, to show you his mercy. He looks on you with affection because he sees Jesus' blood covering you. And so thanks to Jesus' blood, we too are able to appear before God and to approach his holiness.
Now the priests didn't only offer sacrifices on behalf of the people because they also played a role in teaching the people, teaching the people how they should live before God. In the case of the priests before Christ, we read in Hebrews 5.2 that he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Every priest knew what it meant to sin and to have to seek God's forgiveness. Every priest knew what it meant to have to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. And so they were able to approach the people and teach them with humility and with gentleness and with kind correction as they taught God's people toward holiness. Jesus is also able to help those who are being tempted, but not because he sinned. But he is able to do it because he's had, he has firsthand experience of temptation. And in fact, his sinlessness gives him a perfect perspective on temptation. He understands temptation better than you do or I do. Because he knew what it meant never to disappoint his heavenly father. He knew uh, what it meant to obey his father perfectly. And so he knew what sorrows temptation would bring if he had followed through on them. And so Jesus, understanding temptation and having firsthand uh, experience of it, makes him sympathetic toward us. He's not just a distant, uninterested instructor just reading his lecture notes and punching the clock. Because he knows what it means to be tempted. And it gives him a perspective on how strong temptation can be and a perspective of everything that we lose when we give in to that temptation. So he's able to walk with you and to gently help you when you are being tempted. And so in both these aspects, in his mortal life and, uh, and his teaching ministry to us, you see how much it matters that Jesus came and lived life as a human being. He came and lived a physical life so that he could die and defeat death on your behalf. He also came and lived a fully human life so that he could truly be one of us, cover our sins with his blood, and guide us not to walk in sin any longer. So if Jesus, very God of very God, had never come down from heaven, and if he had never been born in that manger of Bethlehem, none of these things could have been true. He couldn't have become one of us, And so that's why he had to be born. And so when you think about the miracle of his birth in Bethlehem, give some thought to what that life enabled him to do on your behalf. Because he's not just a little bitty baby born in Bethlehem, as much as I do enjoy that spiritual. He defeated death for you. He paid the price of your sins with his own life. And he gently guides you to walk in a way that honors him. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you that you sent your Son, our Savior. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you willingly came. You came out of love for your Father and love for us, your people. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you apply these truths to us. And so as we, during this Christmas season, as we Think about the fact that our Lord did come. Father, please 
Help us to understand what all this means. Help us not to leave him in the manger, but to honor him as Lord and to look to him to guide us with gentleness as we are on this earthly pilgrimage until you call us home. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.